Good day, folk. It is Nick Spoor Engel speaking, and today I am going to be talking to you and reading from one of my all-time heroes, whose name is Brian Stevenson. He is a brave American attorney, a courageous man who I first heard at the Global Leadership Summit a couple of years back in Durban, South Africa, and I was very moved by his speech. So I'm going to be reading out of a book by him. It's a New York Times number one bestseller, 100 Notable Books, New York Times Book Review 2014. It's called Just Mercy, A Story of Justice and Redemption. Um, and the New York Review of Books wrote, Every bit as moving as to kill a mockingbird, and in some ways more so. A stirring testament to the salvation that fighting for the vulnerable sometimes yields. I'm going to read from the introduction, and the heading is Higher Ground. I wasn't prepared to meet a condemned man. In 1983, I was 23, a 23-year-old student in Harvard Law School working in Georgia on an internship, eager and inexperienced, and worried that I was in over my head. I had never been or seen the inside of a maximum security prison. And, ha and had certainly never been to death row. When I learned that I would be visiting this prisoner alone, with no lawyer accompanying me, I tried not to let my panic show. Georgia's death row is in a prison outside of Jackson, a remote town in a rural part of the state. I drove there by myself, heading south on I-75 from Atlanta, my heart pounding harder the closer I got. I didn't really know anything about capital punishment and hadn't even taken a class in criminal procedure yet. I didn't have a basic grasp of the complex appeals process that shaped death penalty litigation, a process that would in time become as familiar to me as the back of my hand. When I signed up for this internship, I hadn't given much thought to the fact that I would actually be meeting condemned prisoners. To be honest, I didn't even know if I wanted to be a lawyer. As the miles ticked by on those rural roads, the more convinced I became that this man was going to be very disappointed to see me. I studied philosophy in college and didn't realize until my senior year that no one would pay me to philosophize when I graduated. My frantic search for a post-graduation plan led me to law school, mostly because other graduate programs required you to know something about your field of study to enroll. Law schools, it seemed, didn't require you to know anything. At Harvard, I could study law while pursuing a graduate degree in public policy at the Kennedy School of Government, which appealed to me. 
I was uncertain about what I wanted to do with my life, but I knew it would have something to do with the lives of the poor. America's history of racial inequality and the struggle to be equitable and fair with one another. It would have something to do with the things I'd already seen in life so far and wondered about, but I couldn't really put it together in a way that made a career path clear. Not long after I started classes at Harvard, I began to worry I'd made the wrong choice. Coming from a small college in Pennsylvania, I felt very fortunate to have been admitted by the end of my first year. But, sorry, by the end of my first year, I'd grown disillusioned. At the time, Harvard Law School was a pretty intimidating place, especially for a 21-year-old. Many of the professors used the Socratic method, direct, repetitive, and adversarial questioning, which had the incidental effect of humiliating unprepared students. The courses seemed esoteric and disconnected from the race and poverty issues that had motivated me to consider the law in the first place. Many of the students already had advanced degrees or had worked as paralegals with prestigious law firms. I had none of those credentials. I felt vastly less experienced and worldly than my fellow students. When law firms showed up on campus and began interviewing students a month after classes started, my classmates put on expensive suits and signed up so that they could receive flyouts to New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, or Washington, D.C. It was a complete mystery to me what exactly we were all busily preparing ourselves to do. I had never even met a lawyer before starting law school. I spent the summer after my first year in law school working with a, ju a juvenile justice project in Philadelphia and taking advanced calculus courses at night to prepare for my next year at the Kennedy School. After I started the public policy program in September, I felt disconnected. The curriculum was extremely quantitative, focused on figuring out how to maximize benefits and minimize costs, without much concern for what those benefits achieved and the costs created. While intellectually stimulating, decision theory, econometrics, and similar courses left me feeling adrift. But then suddenly, everything came into focus. I discovered that the law school offered an unusual one-month intensive course on race and poverty litigation taught by Betsy Bartholet a law professor who had worked as an attorney with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Unlike most courses, this one took students off campus, requiring them to spend the month with an organization doing social justice work. 
I eagerly signed up, and so in December 1983, I found myself on a plane to Atlanta, Georgia, where I was scheduled to spend a few weeks working with the Southern Prisoners Defense Committee, the SPDC. I hadn't been able to afford a direct flight to Atlanta, so I had to change planes in Charlotte, North Carolina, and that's where I met Steve Bright, the director of the SPDC, who was flying back to Atlanta after the holidays. Steve was in his mid-30s and had a passion and certainty that seemed the direct opposite of my ambivalence. He'd grown up on a farm in Kentucky and ended up in Washington, D.C. After finishing law school, he was a brilliant trial lawyer at the Public Defender Service for the District of Columbia and had just been recruited to take over the SPDC, whose mission was to assist condemned people on death row in Georgia. He showed none of the disconnect between what he did and what he believed that I'd seen in so many of my law professors. Interestingly, this morning I was in a meeting and the phrase from Socrates came to me. Socrates said, Be as you wish to seem. I'll say that again. Be as you wish to seem. In other words, we should really be inside ourselves as we want to be seen by those out there. For example, our Facebook or public image should be the same as what is happening inside our, our hearts. So that's, that's integrity. So I like what Stevenson says here. So there was... There was no disconnect between what this man did and what he believed. I'll read on in the book. When we, had, when we met, he warmly wrapped me in a full body hug and we started talking. He didn't stop till we'd reached Atlanta. Brian, he said at some point during our short flight. Capital punishment means them without the capital get the punishment. We can't help people on death row without help from people like you. I was taken aback by his immediate belief that I had something to offer. He broke down the issues with the death penalty simply but persuasively and I hung on every word, completely engaged by his dedication and charisma. I just hope you're not expecting anything too fancy while you're here, he said. Oh no, I assured him. I'm grateful for the opportunity to work with you. Well, opportunity isn't necessarily the first word people think of when they think about doing this work, doing work with us. We live kind of simply and the hours are pretty intense. That's not a problem for me. Well, actually... We might even be described as living less than simply, more like living poorly, maybe even barely living, struggling to hang on, 
surviving on the kindness of strangers, scraping by day by day, uncertain of the future. I let slip a concerned look and he laughed. I'm just kidding. Kind of. He moved on to other subjects, but it was clear that his heart and his mind were aligned with the plight of the condemned and those facing unjust treatment in jails and prisons. It was deeply affirming to meet someone whose work so powerfully animated his life. There were just a few attorneys working at the SPDC when I arrived that winter. Most of them were former criminal defense lawyers from Washington who had come to Georgia in response to a growing crisis. Death row prisoners couldn't get lawyers. In their 30s, men and women, black and white, these lawyers were comfortable with one another in a way that reflected a shared mission, shared hope, and shared stress about the challenges they faced. After years of prohibition and delay, executions were again taking place in the Deep South, and most of the people crowded on death row had no lawyers and no right to counsel. There was a growing fear that people would soon be killed without ever having their cases reviewed by skilled counsel. We were getting frantic calls every day from people who had no legal assistance but whose dates of execution were on the calendar and approaching fast. I'd never heard voices so desperate. When I started my internship, everyone was extremely kind to me and I felt immediately at home. The SPDC was located in downtown Atlanta in the Healy Building, a 16-story Gothic revival structure built in the early 1900s that was in considerable decline and losing tenants. I worked in a cramped circle of desks with two lawyers and did clerical work, answering phones and researching legal questions for staff. I was just getting settled into my office routine when Steve asked me to go to death row to meet with a condemned man whom no one else had time to visit. He explained that the man had been on the row for over two years and that they didn't yet have a lawyer to take his case. My job was to convey to this man one simple message. You will not be killed in the next year. I drove through farmland and wooded areas of rural Georgia, rehearsing what I would say when I met this man. I practiced my introduction over and over. Hello, my name is Brian. I'm a student with the... No, I'm a law student... No. My name is Brian Stevenson. I'm a legal intern with the Southern Prisoners Defense Committee, and I've been instructed to inform you that you will not be executed soon. You can't be executed soon. You are not at risk of execution anytime soon. No. I continued practicing my presentation until I pulled up to the intimidating barbed wire fence and white guard tower of the Georgia Diagnostic and Classification Center. Around the office, we just called it Jackson. So seeing the facility's actual name on a sign was jarring. It sounded clinical, even therapeutic. I parked and found my way to the prison entrance and walked inside the main building with its dark corridors and gated 
hallways where metal bars barricaded every access point. The interior eliminated any doubt that this was a hard place. I walked down a tunneled corridor to the legal visitation area, each step echoing ominously across the spotless tiled floor. When I told the visitation officer that I was a paralegal sent to meet with a death row prisoner, he looked at me suspiciously. I was wearing the only suit I owned, and we could both see that it had been that it had seen better days. The officer's eyes seemed to linger long and hard over my driver's license before he tilted his head toward me to speak. You're not local. It was more of a statement than a question. No, sir. Well, I'm working in Atlanta. After calling the warden's office to confirm that my visit had been properly scheduled, he finally admitted me, brusquely directing me to the small room where the visit would take place. Don't get lost in here. We won't promise to come and find you, he warned. The visitation room was 20 feet square with a few tools bolted to the floor. Stools <laughs> bolted to the floor. Everything in the room was made of metal and secured. In front of the stools, wire mesh ran from a small ledge up to a ceiling 12 feet high. The room was an empty cage until I walked into it. For family visits, inmates and visitors had to be on opposite sides of the mesh interior wall. They spoke to one another through the wires of the mesh. Legal visits, on the other hand, were contact visits. The two of us could be on the same side of the room to permit more privacy. The room was small, and although I knew it couldn't be true, it felt like it was getting smaller by the second. I began worrying again about my lack of preparation. I scheduled to meet with the client for one hour, but I wasn't sure how I'd even how I'd fill even fifteen minutes with what I knew. I sat down on one of the stools and waited. After fifteen minutes of growing anxiety, I finally heard the clanging of chains on the other side of the door. The man who walked in seemed even more nervous than I was. He glanced at me, his face screwed up in a worried wince, and he quickly averted his gaze. When I looked back, he didn't move far from the room's entrance as if he didn't really want to enter the visitation room. He was a young, neatly groomed African-American man with short hair, clean-shaven, medium frame and build, wearing bright, clean prison whites. He looked immediately familiar to me. Like everyone I'd grown up with, friends from school, people I played sports or music with, someone I'd talked to on the street about the weather. The guards slowly unchanged, unchained him, removing his handcuffs and the shackles around his ankles, and then locked eyes with me and told me I had one hour. The officer seemed to sense that both the prisoner and I were nervous and to take some pleasure in our discomfort, grinning at me before turning on his heel and leaving the room. The metal door banged loudly behind him and reverberated through the small space. 
The condemned man didn't come any closer and I didn't know what else to do. So I walked over and offered him my hand. He shook it cautiously. We sat down and he spoke first. I'm Henry, he said. I'm very sorry, were the first words I blurted out. Despite all my preparations and rehearsed marks, I couldn't stop myself from apologizing repeatedly. I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. Uh, okay, uh, I don't really know. Uh, I'm just a law student, not a real lawyer. I'm so sorry. I can't tell you very much, but I don't know very much. Man looked at me worriedly. Is everything all right with my case? Oh, yes, sir. The lawyers at the SPDC sent me down to tell you that they don't have a lawyer yet. I mean, we don't have a lawyer for you yet, but you're not at risk of execution any time in the next year. We're working on finding a lawyer, a real lawyer, and we hope the lawyer will be down here to see you in the next few months. I'm just a law student. I'm really happy to help. I mean, if there's something I can do. The man interrupted my chatter by quickly grabbing my hands. I'm not going to have an execution date any time in the next year. No, sir. They said it would be at least a year before you get an execution date. Those words didn't sound very comforting to me, but Henry just squeezed my hands tighter and tighter. Thank you, man. I mean, really, thank you. This is great news. His shoulders unhunched and he looked at me with intense relief in his eyes. You are the first person I've met in over two years after coming to death row who is not another death row prisoner or a death row guard. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad to get this news. He exhaled loudly and seemed to relax. I've been talking to my wife on the phone, but I haven't wanted her to come and visit me or bring the kids because I was afraid they'd show up and I'd have an execution date. I just don't want them here like that. Now I'm going to tell them... They can come and visit. Thank you. I was astonished that he was so happy. I relaxed too, and he began to talk. It turned out that we were exactly the same age. Henry asked me questions about myself, and I asked him about his life. Within an hour, we were both lost in the conversation. We talked about everything. He, he told me about his family, and he told me about his trial. He asked me about law school and my family. We talked about music, we talked about prison, we talked about what's important in life and what's not. I was completely absorbed in our conversation. We laughed at times and there were moments when he was very emotional and sad. We kept talking and talking and it was only when I heard a loud bang on the door that I realized I'd stayed way past my allotted time for the legal visit. I looked at my watch. I'd been there three hours the guard came in and he was angry. He snarled at me. You should have been done a long time ago. You have to leave. He began handcuffing Henry, pulling his hands together behind his back and locking them there. Then he roughly shackled Henry's ankles. The guard was so angry he put the cuffs on too tight. I could see Henry grimacing with pain. I said, I think those cuffs are on too tight. Can you loosen them, please? I told you, you need to leave. You don't tell me how to do my job. Henry gave me a smile and said, It's okay, Brian. Don't worry about this. Just come back and see me again, okay? 
I could see him wince with each click of the chains being tightened around his waist. I must have looked pretty distraught. Henry kept saying, don't worry, Brian, don't worry. Come back, okay. As the officer pushed him toward the door, Henry turned back to look at me. I started mumbling, I'm really sorry, I'm really sorry. Don't worry about this, Brian, he said, cutting me off, just come back. I looked at him and struggled to say something appropriate, something reassuring, something that expressed my gratitude to him for being so patient with me. But I couldn't think of anything to say. Henry looked at me and smiled. The guard was shoving him toward the door roughly. I didn't like the way Henry was being treated, but he continued to smile until just before the guard could push him fully out of the room, he planted his feet to resist the officer's shoving. He looked so calm. Then he did something completely unexpected. I watched him close his eyes and tilt his head back. I was confused by what he was doing. And then he opened his mouth and I understood and he began to sing. He had a tremendous baritone voice that was strong and clear. It startled both me and the guard who stopped pushing. I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. Still praying as I'm onward bound. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. It was an old hymn they used to sing all the time in the church where I grew up. I hadn't heard it in years. Henry sang slowly and with great sincerity and conviction. I took a moment before the officer, it took a moment before the officer recovered and resumed pushing him out the door. Because his ankles were shackled and his hands were locked behind his back. Henry almost stumbled. When the guard shoved him forward, he had to waddle to keep his balance, but he kept on singing. I could hear him as he went down the hall. Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's table land, a higher plane and I, that I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. I sat down com completely stunned. Henry's voice was filled with desire. I experienced his song as a precious gift. I had come into the prison with such anxiety and fear about his willingness to tolerate my inadequacy. I didn't expect him to be compassionate or generous. I had no right to expect anything from a condemned man on death row. Yet he gave me an astonishing measure of his humanity. In that moment, Henry altered Something in my understanding of human potential, redemption, and hopefulness. <laughs>